So if you are in fourth through sixth grade, I am uh, going to start talking now, and the last thing you want to do is be here for that. So you're excused. It's much better where you're going. So how you all doing? Yeah, okay. So a little more caffeine would be good. It's available right out there. Uh, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you are here. We are Redemption Church Arcadia. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And we seek, we aspire to embody the gospel in all of life, in our community, and in our neighborhood here. I was thinking about that this morning and, and just sort of reminded of, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, God called his people Israel to be a light to the nations. And so in a similar way, I believe we're called to be a light to our community here as well. So last week, <clears throat> for those of you who are here, I promised you an update on our Sacred Space Initiative. And so there's the slide. It's official. I'm going to give you an update. And I will just say that it's been said, we live in interesting times, and times change daily. And so uh, I'm going to start this update by letting you know that as of Tuesday, I had a completely different update prepared for you. <laughs> and then... And, and, and I mean, we had, we had new renderings, we had our new timeline uh, all set, and we were in really good shape, and we're still in good shape. But on Wednesday, we had a major curveball thrown at us on Wednesday. Uh, we were led to believe that certain things would happen. Uh, now we're not 100% sure they will, and so we had to take a bit of a step back. I'm sure you all know how challenging it is to work with banks today as opposed to maybe 18 months ago. Now. I want to make sure you understand also by saying that we're not blaming the bank. I mean, the bank has to do their due diligence, and in these changing times, how rapidly things change, they have to reassess all the time, and, and that just makes sense to me. But it has also forced us, and when I say us, I mean the leadership of the church, the elders and the pastors, uh, the staff, to, to kind of go back to the table and dig a little bit deeper. Um, I want you to know that the elders of this church uh, meet twice a month. Now, that's uh, for like Tyler and I, that's, I mean, we're pastors, we're used to meetings and even sometimes try to get out of them. But at any rate, um, we, three of our elders are not on staff. They have jobs and they have families and things like that. And so to ask them to, in addition to everything they do to meet twice a month is, is really a big responsibility. And, and, and then um, because of what happened Wednesday, Tyler and I said, we got to get the elders together and talk about this on Friday. And, and so they were willing to rearrange their schedules and set things aside on Friday afternoon so that we could get together and meet. And I, and I mentioned that because I'm thankful for the elders uh, here at this church as well. So today's update will tell you what we, what we think we know now. Uh, and we're planning on having another update. We think we'll know a lot more by the first or second um, week in, in January. So we're going to have another update then. But I wanted to let you know a little bit about what we know now. This, uh, and first of all, this turn of events does not affect our new construction timeline, which is really good news. So we have time to figure this out without, um, uh, hopefully figure this out without um, uh, affecting our construction timeline. Um, and, and here's another item that's really helpful that I've mentioned a little bit before, but I really want to hit it uh, hard again. Uh, something else has been super helpful is, is um, Whenever there's a building project or a building campaign in, in a church, we are asking uh, the congregation to give 
over and above their regular giving in order to fund uh, the project. And, and we've done our due diligence in researching how that's supposed to go for a congregation our size and in our demographic and everything. And throughout this whole process for the last 14 or 15 months, uh, your over and above giving has been uh, beyond the standard expectations. So that's been very encouraging uh, to us uh, as well. And, and just personally, I want to tell you that uh, that fact reminds me of what a privilege and a responsibility it is to lead this faith community. It truly is a privilege, but I also take the responsibility very uh, seriously, and I'm glad to be a part of this faith community. Uh, at any rate, what we're going to do is take the next five or six weeks to work hard. Uh, we're asking for your patience in the midst of this, as we have also had to be patient. It's been quite the test of the fruit of the Spirit, and I think we're doing pretty well with that. But there's something else that I want us to remember. Uh, if you'll recall, if you've been around, this project was disrupted in a major way last spring in April when we faced the reality of the challenges with the city permitting process that just absolutely went haywire. And, and they were months and months and months behind. So we had a disruption there. And that coincided with the, the disruption of the sort of sudden uh, realization that we needed to restructure Redemption Church Arizona. All of that was very frustrating to us at the time in April, but ultimately as that all unfolded, we saw how God actually worked that out to our benefit. And so in the midst of this curveball, I'm choosing to believe that as frustrating as this could be, it is again some sort of God's grace for us. The problem with God's grace is that we never know in the moment well, we don't always know in the moment exactly what that grace is for us. It's always after the fact or often after the fact. And so I'm trusting that in the moment it's God's grace for us. In the meantime, we're asking for you to pray with us and for us so that we'd have wisdom and discernment in the midst of these next six weeks. Uh, and, and to help us remember, help us remember that this is kingdom work. This is kingdom work. And we need to approach it with reverence and humility. So, having said that, um, part of this update that hasn't changed, um, I wanted to be able to update you on the, on, the on the 2023 operations of the church. The last time I talked about this was in June, and I felt like it was time to do that again and also present you with the fact that we've finished the 2024 operating budget, which we need to present to you as well. And so we can put that slide up there, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and you can take a picture of this slide if it's helpful, and, and you'll, you'll have a chance later to email some people if you have questions about any of this. But um, if you'll recall, again, if you were around in June, uh, I came to you in June and said, we got a bit of a financial challenge. Uh, we have an operating deficit through May of $80,000 this year, which just doesn't ever happen in this, in this community. Uh, we felt like maybe it was partly because um, whether it's conscious or unconscious, you know, when you're, when you're asking people to give to a big campaign, uh, it, it sort of chips away at your operating capital as well. And so we're in the midst of that campaign and everything. But we had a deficit of $80,000, and I came to you and I said, we really need some help. And... and and you all responded. You all responded. Uh, as of the end of October, our deficit is now $7,200 compared to $80,000. Uh, 
Um, what's interesting is if you look at our 2023 budget, we had budgeted for a year-to-date deficit through October of $3,600. So we're only about $3,600 behind where we, uh, where we had budgeted to be now because of your response since June. Uh, I'll also add this though, uh, our actual expenses year-to-date are more than $50,000 below what we had budgeted through October. Uh, which means that the staff also, our staff also responded uh, to this uh, issue uh, by, by cutting expenses everywhere that they possibly could. So the staff has done a beautiful job of helping out uh, with that. So let me re- just kind of review these basic figures here. Um, giving through, through um, October is a million expenses of a million seven, there's our deficit uh, running right now. Um, our, our budgeted finish now is still a million three sixty. Redemption Arcadia has always had very strong end of year giving. For the twelve years that I've been here, that's been like a guidepost for us. That the end of year giving is very strong, and so uh, we we have confidence that we'll be able to hit that million three sixty. Um, because the staff has responded, though, it has changed where we believe we'll end the year with expenses. We think we'll end up uh, under a, a million three in expenses, uh, giving us a new budgeted surplus, we believe, of about $70,000. We had budgeted for a $4,500 surplus. So we think the, the surplus is going to be better. Uh, and then that brings us to the 2024 budget, scaling back just a little bit on... on um, our uh, giving expectations, again, because of the capital campaign, um, uh, with budgeted expenses a little bit below that and, and a budgeted. By the way, I, I'm conservative, fiscally conservative. Uh, I'm conservative in a lot of different ways. I'd never jump out of an airplane with a parish. I'm really conservative, okay? Um, and so uh, everything that we do budget wise is generally pretty uh, conservative. Anyway, that's to give you an idea of what, what it looks like. Um, going forward. A couple of short-term items that will help. On Tuesday, our executive pastor, Tyler James, and I went to the staff and said, listen, let's just, let's just uh, clamp down on expenses, cut down on expenses for the, uh, for the rest of December. If, if, if you don't absolutely have to spend it, and by the way, funnel that through us, let's just not spend it. Now, having said that, we're going to pay our mortgage, we're going to pay our utility bills, uh, we're going to pay the insurance, but, but we're, we're going to try hard to um, put, put a stop to a lot of other things. And then, like I mentioned, um, there's always this strong year-end giving at Redemption Arcadia, which I know will help us as well. If you have any questions about any of this, including the Sacred Space update, I would encourage you to email uh, Tyler James, our executive pastor, or Steve Wheeler, who is the uh, chairman of the elders. All right. Now, I, I teach a lot of college classes, so... I feel like at this point I should say, are there any questions, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word, because I'm actually going to preach a sermon this morning as well. So our our, uh, reading this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. You may be seated. So this is Advent season, and we always do an Advent series. So I want to preview the Advent series and then let you know that today's message in the Advent series is going to have uh, two parts. So this time of year, we celebrate, through Advent, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, Christmas, but we also celebrate the fact that he's going to come again, the Advent of Jesus. We anticipate his return, so we look past to the past, but we also look to the future. In the midst of that, we worship a Trinitarian God. We worship a Trinitarian God. Now, you need to understand, we are monotheists. There is one God. And the reason we're monotheists is because the Bible is monotheist, okay? But, we, but this, this one God manifests himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you ever ask God the question, who is responsible for this? The answer is always all three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's perfect harmony between the three. And throughout the Bible, the Trinity has revealed himself through the triune of unity. So if you want to talk about salvation, it's all three. If you want to talk about sanctification, it's all three. If you want to talk about discipleship, it's all three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there is one event that although all three persons of the Godhead acted as one God, only one person of the Trinity took on a new nature, and that is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So as a bride has her mother and sister help her put on a wedding dress, the eternal Father and eternal Spirit helped the Son to put on flesh. All three persons have been present and active throughout history, culminating in the crescendo of God revealing himself in the incarnation of Jesus. So this year's Advent series will look at the incarnation through the three lenses of the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And today we're going to look at it through the lens of the Father. So in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John writes these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this idea that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the incarnation of Jesus, has been variously translated or interpreted as He, he dwelt among us, He lived here with us, He tabernacled in our presence, and He, and he moved into the neighborhood. And I like all of those pictures and ideas and images of what Jesus did. But this is the enfleshment, the incarnation of God. And this is, what we need to understand is this is ultimately and the culmination, it's ultimately and the culmination of how the Father would make himself known. Jesus, God's Son, God's, God come in the flesh, 
This was not God's last resort to make himself known. It wasn't like God was sitting up there going, they just won't listen. I've done everything. I parted the Red Sea. I sent my prophets. I, that's, not, that's not what he's doing. This is not his last resort. It's not him being frustrated. It's not his last ditch effort. But rather, Jesus coming in the flesh is the culmination of his plan all along. But, as we will see, Jesus is also different than the other revelations that God uses. Jesus inaugurates a new era, an era of the new covenant, the era of the church, and the era of anticipating and waiting for the new Jerusalem, which we talked about last week at the end of our Revelation series. So in Jesus... There is continuity to God's plan, but there's also a discontinuity in how God's prophets spoke for God, but Jesus is God. So there is that discontinuity. Now, that discontinuity is not uh, a bad thing, but it is different nonetheless. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. This sermon, as I said, has two parts. The first part is the finality of Jesus' sacrificial incarnation, resulting in the salvation of anyone who would believe in him. And then secondly, we're going to look at the revelatory incarnational plan of the Father all along. So the introduction of the book of Hebrews gives us a shorthand of how the Father desired to reveal himself, how he desired to make himself known, to bring himself to life by way of the incarnational sacrifice of Jesus, which brought a finality to the sacrificial system of sin that had been set up for thousands of years prior to that through the Torah, through the Mosaic Law. All of that is done through Jesus. So we have a new covenant of just believing in Jesus. He's the final sacrifice. So knowing that, let me reread this passage from Hebrews and then we'll unpack it. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When the author of Hebrews refers to God the Father, speaking to and by the prophets, the first thing we should understand is that he's not just referring to the canonical prophets, what we would call the canonical prophets. He's not just referring to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, he's not just referring to those prophets, the the book of prophets that we would call, but he's talking about all of the prophetic leaders in the Old Testament. He's, He's including people such as Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, and and more. It's it's what he would, the author of Hebrews would describe later in chapter 11 as the sort of the hall of fame of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible. And, and we will get to the totality of that revelation in just a few minutes. But, but first, I want us to look at these seven propositions 
that the Hebrew author brings to the reader about Jesus just in these few verses. And in fact, it's really just in verses 2 and 3, these seven propositions. Here they are. Number one, Jesus is the heir of all things. And you know what's really awesome and cool about that? The Bible tells us that for any of us who have come to Jesus in repentance of faith, any of us, any of us who are in Christ, the Bible tells us that we are co-heirs with Jesus in that inheritance. That's pretty good. Second of all, Jesus created all things. When God the Father created everything in Genesis chapter 1, he was not doing it solo. The Holy Spirit was there hovering over the void. Jesus was also there, the Son. Paul reminds us in the first chapter of Colossians, which, by the way, we're going to look at on Sunday, December 31st. Paul reminds us that, that Jesus was there. That God created things through him. The Father created things through him. And then number three, Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory. Jesus shines forth. His glory, his presence shines forth the love, grace, mercy, judgment, and justice of the Father. We see, when we look at Jesus, we see the glory of the Father. Number four, Jesus is the exact imprint, or some people would say the repre exact representation of the Father. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. In, in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus at one point looks at all of the religious leaders who are very angry with him, looks at him and he says, I and the Father, we are one. And in doing so, he, if you understand that ancient Greek, you understand that what Jesus is saying, I and the Father are the same essence. Jesus is saying, I'm God. And, and I'll tell you, it's interesting. I run into people occasionally who say, Jesus never said he's God. Well, well that's just not true. He said it in John chapter 10, verse 31. And the reason I know that is because if you read verses 32 and 33 and 34, you know that the religious, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you know their reaction was to desire to kill Jesus. Why? Because he claimed to be God. It's right there in the text. You just have to read it. You just have to read it. It's right there. And then... Number five, Jesus upholds the universe. He holds, he holds the entire universe all together. Now, this is really important to understand. This is not the ancient idea of someone like Atlas holding up the world or holding up the universe. This is not Jesus saying, here's the universe and I'm just hanging out over here until this all is finished. That's not what he's doing. When it says that Jesus upholds the universe, it means that he is... He is going to carry the universe to its divine completion, its purposed completion. Jesus' activity in humanity and in creation is active. It's not passive. We need to consider and understand that the same word that created this universe also powers, perpetuates, and perfects the universe. The number six, this is a big one. Jesus made purifications for sin. I have a note in my, uh, in my uh, uh, notes here that, that says I need to do an Al Pacino hooyah here. <laughs> he made purification for our sins. You know, in the Old Testament, the priests constantly had to make sacrifices for the sins of the people. 
And just to be frank about, I, I am frank, but frankly, the, the animals hated this sacrificial system. They really hated it. Uh, what's also interesting is that the people were not quite enamored with this system either. They weren't that happy about it either. Okay? This constant need to be cleansed. You'd go in and you'd, you'd sacrifice an animal. You'd go, I'm all good. And you'd walk out. Three steps outside of the temple, you'd have an impure thought. And you're like, i got to go back. Okay, they weren't that enamored with this system either. But the reason they had it was because God is holy and something has to be done about sins. But then Jesus came. It is finished. Jesus says the last thing on the cross, it is finished. The, the ultimate superior priest, Jesus is a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king, He's God. He's all three. And as the superior priest, Jesus did not lay an animal on the altar for our sin, but rather he laid himself on the altar of the cross for our sins, and it is finished. If we were charismatic right now, you'd all be jumping over the chairs. Should be. That's good news. Thank you. <laughs> and number seven, Jesus sat down in majesty. Jesus sat down in majesty. Sitting down in that ancient cultural context meant that you have completed everything that is required. It's done. Jesus has done it. So at this point, we're halfway through this message. At this point, I have to just ask this question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? This is who Jesus is. Well, I heard he was this, and I heard he was that. This is who he is. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, it's just truly one of the loveliest paragraphs in the Bible. And that's why. So now, the revelation and the incarnation of the Father. I'm going to give you, admittedly, a brief, a brief biblical record of God's disclosure of himself. A brief biblical record of God's disclosure of himself. I'll start it by saying this, uh, by, by uh, giving you this quote from the great Leon Morris. The revelation and incarnation of God was never a monotonous activity that had no variance. God the Father is creative and persistent. Love that. And so that revelation and incarnation of the Father starts with creation. Genesis chapter 1. This is the beauty of God preparing the world for our inhabitation. And our inhabitation is the crown of His creation. He, he, he separates humanity in the creation narrative to make sure we understand that we are the crown. We are the only thing he created in his image. Also, Paul, in the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, says that we are, we are the crowning achievement of God's, of, of, of God's creation. We are his masterpiece. Okay? So, in the midst of that creation narrative, you, you, see, you, you see that there's, there's this hovering of God's spirit over the void, over the chaos, and then suddenly there's light and dark, there's water and land, there's vegetation and trees, there's the stars and moon, there's the fish and birds and livestock and beasts and, ex and, and uh, insects. And then we're reminded in the New Testament about creation. In chapter 1 of the letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome, he says, listen, you need to look around you because it's just obvious 
This creation, this beautiful creation that we admire and honor and steward is clear, unequivocal evidence of a creator. The creation itself points to the fact that there is a creator, and it is the creator we should worship. Paul says our problem is that we worship the created things rather than the creator. We have misplaced affections. So God uh, incarnates himself and he And he reveals himself through creation. And then he incarnates himself and reveals himself, in a sense, through us. So we get to the culmination of that creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Let me just read it. Then God said, let us make man, humanity, in our image after our likeness. Let us. Notice what the text says there. Let us. It doesn't say, I'm going to make. It says, let us make. Now, what does the us refer to? Well, it refers to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead. The Godhead. I've heard this argued before. Sometimes you go to seminary and you hear the craziest things, but I've heard this argued that, no, it was God and the angels. The angels helped him. No, No, angels don't have any creational power like that. It's the Godhead that's doing this. So God said, let us make... Human beings in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion. That that word means trusted stewardship, not dominance. But let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So Making you and I in the image of God is a revelation from God of who he is. And if you want to have a longer discussion about what the image of God means, I'm happy to have that. I've taught on that before. It's it's an interesting thing. But there's, there's his revelation and incarnation through us. And then there's the revelation and incarnation of God through his plan. And I know some of you are thinking, we're still in Genesis, and, and you're going to be done in 15 minutes? That's amazing. Okay, hang in there with me, but go to Genesis 3, 15. So after the curse, after the original sin, God comes and says, uh, I, got, I got three sets of curses that I need to give you now because, of, because you disobeyed and ate the fruit. There's three sets of curses, and the first set of curses, God speaks to Satan, the adversary, the snake, the serpent, Okay. He says, here's how you're going to be cursed. And in verse 15 there, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your, you shall bruise his heel. So this is God saying, I already have a plan for what happened just 30 seconds ago. When they ate the fruit, And their eyes were opened. And I had that little discussion with them, and they both started to blame shift. And now we have the curse of original sin in our our midst. God is saying, I already have a plan. This, This verse right here is about the fact that God is going to send a Messiah, his son. In academic circles, Chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis is known as the Proto-Euangelion. It's the first gospel message in the Bible. And it's not in the New Testament. It's in Genesis chapter 3. And that language there that says that the Messiah, the son of the woman, in other words, this lineage comes down even through David, 
If you study the lineage of Jesus, his human lineage, you study that. It comes through King David and and it goes all the way back to the garden. It it says that the Messiah is going to bruise the head of the serpent, of the adversary, of Satan, and Satan is going to bruise the heel of the Messiah. So what what does that mean? Well, in ancient Hebrew language or, or colloquialisms, Bruising somebody's heel means you're going to wound them. So Satan is going to wound the Messiah, which he did through the cross. But that, but that the Messiah is going to crush, utterly crush Satan. That's what it means to wound somebody's head, to wound a head. And that's what Jesus did through the cross and the resurrection. When he came busting out of that tomb three days after the crucifixion, in the resurrection, He crushed the head of Satan, sin, and death. And that's why we can live in the midst of his grace. So God is revealing himself incarnationally and revelatorily through this plan in Genesis chapter 3. And so then there's several more in rapid fire. We move to the dreams of Joseph in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. God is revealing himself for his people through the dreams of Joseph, which culminate, if you know the story, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, you meant all of this for evil, but God meant it for good. God was revealing himself even through the evil that you perpetuated. And in effect, he lets his brothers off the hook, which his brothers were pretty glad for. Then, just a few chapters later, God reveals himself to Moses through the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3. Moses is out there minding his own business, thinking that he's got nothing left to give to God at 80 years old. And God comes to him through this burning bush and starts talking to him. He says, hey, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. And he says, I am who I am. I am the great I am. He says, Moses, I am all. I am total. I am fulfillment. I am holiness. I'm salvation. I'm justice and I'm rescue. That's God revealing and incarnating himself to Moses. And then he does the same thing through the rescue of his people. Moses leading his people out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. That's Exodus chapters 12 through 14. The plagues and the, and the um, splitting of the Red Sea. And then after they got through the Red Sea and they're out in the wilderness for 40 years, God reveals himself through the manna and the meat. That's Exodus chapter 16. The provision of food when the people start to complain. We don't have anything to eat. The manna appears, and then he says, watch out for those birds, you know, dropping out of the sky to provide you with meat. And then in Exodus chapter 20 and and in Deuteronomy chapter 5, God reveals himself and incarnates himself through the law, through the Ten Commandments. And And then they enter the promised land. That's the book of Joshua. And especially God revealed himself in how Jericho fell when they entered the promised land. If you've noticed in the lobby on the way in, there's a painting there done by one of, uh, a former prisoner that I ministered to for years, and he now attends Redemption uh, Tempe. He and his family do. Uh, Charlie Robeson, there's a painting there that he did about this very moment. And I love the enthymeme in this painting. Uh, it's, it's Joshua with his hand up on the wall of Jericho, and in his other hand, he's looking at a ram's horn. And the enthymeme is this idea that he's looking at the horn, Joshua, and he's going, okay, so I blow this horn, and this wall comes down? And that's what happened, because it was God who did it. God revealing himself to his people through the conquering of Jericho. 
And then after that, we have all the prophets, the corpus, the body of the prophetic books. And there's lots of thus saith the Lord, but those books are also marked by uh, how poorly God's people would listen and obey during that time. And as, as a result of that, of course, they went into exile. But before that, I want to mention specifically within the prophets, there's Isaiah in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, which is just fantastic. You know, Isaiah goes into the temple and there's these, these cherubim, these angels flying around saying, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with God's glory, revealing specifically to the great prophet Isaiah God's truth and reality and life. Then there's exile. Even through exile, God was revealing and incarnating himself, even through his judgment of his people. When you read in the prophets that God is going to send, it says that. It doesn't say that it's just happenstance that an army came from the north. No, God sent the Babylonian army from the north into Jerusalem, into Judea to judge his people because they wouldn't listen to him. God's, but even that sending of the Babylonian army was God's revelation and his incarnation for his people so that they would know. And you can read about that in Lamentations and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Esther. Even Esther, which is a hundred years later. I'll say more about Esther in a second. Then, after the exile, there's restoration. 70 years later, hey, come on back to Jerusalem. Rebuild Jerusalem and then rebuild the, the wall and rebuild the temple. That's Ezra and Nehemiah. And then there's God's providence. And that's the book of Esther. And I, I got to tell you, I'm just a teeny bit excited about this. Uh, we've got the preaching calendar done for 2024. And in February and March, we're going to do eight weeks in the book of Esther. And I have let the other pastors know that if there's any book in the Bible that I'm going to preach every message out of, it's Esther. I love that book. And the reason I love that book is because God's presence and providence is so obvious, yet in a book where his name is never mentioned. Any of you ever feel like you can't seem to figure out where God is in the midst of something? Read the book of Esther. He's there. He's there. And then after that, there's this wild 400 years of silence from God. From Malachi to Matthew, there's 400 years of silence. And I know that God was working even through that intertestamental period of 400 years of God's silence. I know that he was working through that because how would the gospel writers... How would the New Testament writers know the Old Testament so well 400 years later? It's because God continued to work in his people, even during this time of silence, so to speak. God was revealing himself. And then, of course, came Jesus. John chapter, John chapter 1, God come in the flesh. Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Just as the Father incarnates Jesus, Jesus incarnates the Father. And again, he is coming. Jesus is coming in person. It's revelation, what we looked at the last 12 weeks. The incarnation of Jesus puts flesh on the Father. He says, I only do what my Father tells me to do. He says, I and the Father, we are one. We are the same. And the Father says of Jesus, this is my Son with whom 
with whom I am well pleased because he will carry out the will of the Father incarnationally. And when Jesus ascends, he sends the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit keeps the incarnation of the Father and Son alive forever and ever. Incarnation, salvation, sanctification, grace, love, and hope. It's all three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the most beautiful harmony in history. Amen. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for how you have constantly and consistently worked your plan, not our plan, for the revelation, for the incarnation, and for the reality of who you are. Not only through yourself, but also through your Son, through your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for that. I just pray that we would we would be able to look upon this narrative that you've given us through your word and understand the tremendous love and grace that you have given to us through your son Jesus by the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.